Good afternoon to all of those who are in the East Coast. Uh, good morning to those in the Central and Pacific time zones. We have a fascinating speaker today. Together with Major General Nadav Padan, we have Aaron Ostrovsky, who's really a renowned, a world-renowned uh, civil rights attorney. And he's dealing with a number of issues, what we in the vernacular call lawfare, whether it's the Red Cross, ICC issues, United Nations issues. It's something that he's made a career of, and, and there's a coalition of attorneys across the globe that are dealing with this under Aaron's lead. He serves as the CEO of, of this group. But right now, in the context of this war, things are even more significant than ever. Uh, Steve, thank you so much for that uh, for the introduction. You know, as, as you said uh, in the introduction, I'm a human rights lawyer. I have and continue to proudly serve my nation, um, our people. Uh, but you know what? I'm also a, uh, a father. Uh, father of two young daughters, and the oldest of who is not yet seven, and who came to me the other night and said, Abba, I had a bad dream. And I know exactly already what their dream was. She says, Abba, I dreamt that the, the bad guys took me. They took me to Gaza. You know, we teach children that monsters exist only in books, but the reality is that that they exist in real life. And as long as our hostages, our loved ones remain in captivity in Gaza, they will continue to exist and they will continue to exist until we return our hostages and eliminate uh, Hamas um, from Gaza as well. Um, why do I say this? I say this because in so many ways, we here are all affected one way or another. Um, there isn't, this is not a war in an abstract. Uh, we. We all know someone who's either been tragically killed, kidnapped, hurt, or who's missing. Um, and I know you guys feel it too, as both as passionate Zionists and as Jews in your own community uh, with your support uh, for Israel and, and, and for the IDF. And, uh, you know, I'm cognizant also the fact that anti-Semitism as a result of uh, the war that Hamas launched against us has surged um, in the United States, especially on campuses and in circumstances today, which would have been one day unthinkable, but where calls for genocide of the Jewish people are now to be seen as something in context. Um, I would suggest, I would say, you know, it seems that overnight, somehow, um, everyone has become an expert in international law, in the, in the Geneva Conventions, um, yet could hardly name to you one single, one single article. Um, instead, what we have seen is a systematic and fundamental of uh, systematic and fundamental perversion of international law that has been weaponized as a tool to vilify Israel, um, to allow the masquerading of it um, as an excuse uh, to engage in anti-Semitic behavior and to portray Israel and by extension IDF soldiers as uh, war criminals, as pariahs, as committing some of the most heinous crimes. Uh, that, of course, could not be further from the truth. There is only one side that is guilty here of committing international law violations, and that is not us. That is not Israel. That is Hamas, the Hamas ISIS terrorist group that initiated this unprecedented uh, campaign massacre against the Israeli people. Um, we have seen crimes from every imaginable um, violation, from mass murder to rape, to torture, to mutilation, to pillaging, to indiscriminate, rocket fire, uh, to use of human shields, and of course, ultimately, to taking of hostages as well. Every conceivable international law has been violated by Hamas. Ultimately, what they are doing is committing, quite frankly, a double war crime. They are hiding behind innocent civilians in Gaza, whilst targeting indiscriminately civilians in Israel. That in itself is a double war crime. Um, Golda Meir, who once famously said, she said many famous things, but she said, um, the world hates the Jew who hits back. The world loves us only when we are to be pitied. She said those words many, many years ago, but how true they ring today. We saw immediately wake of October 7th, the whole world really offer eloquent message of support and solidarity and unity with Israel. But the second that we hit back, as any sovereign nation in the world would, uh, United States, any EU country, as any nation would, 
automatically and reflexively the international community was up in arms. Automatically, Israel's actions are disproportionate. Automatically, we are committing suddenly grave war crimes. Um, you know, the world recognizes Israel's right to self-defense as if we should be somehow grateful for that. The most basic and fundamental, not just rights, but really obligations of any sovereign nation. But then when we exercise that right, as I said, automatically, there is, um, there is outrage. Uh, but specifically with respect to this charge of disproportionality, um, which seemingly, you know, each time we fight back each time our soldiers risk their own lives in order to save not just our lives but civilian Palestinian lives. Um, the world is somehow outraged that we didn't just simply lay down our arms and uh, and surrender. But we have to also ask what is proportionality? And I think first, and it's important because these issues directly affect uh, soldiers, IDF soldiers on the ground in their operational uh, capabilities um, and in terms of their their strategies, and we'll, I'll touch upon that a little bit later on as well. But firstly, you know, we need to dismiss that proportionality is, some, is measured by some kind of a perverse equivalence in casualties. It is not. If you kill five people, it doesn't mean that we can kill five people and that will be uh, proportional. It does not work the way. It's not some kind of quid pro quo. But also, we need to bear in mind that what can ever be a proportionate response when our children, women, loved ones, mothers, fathers, grandfathers have been literally mass executed, raped, mutilated, taken hostage. What can ever be proportionate response? Uh, but under international law, it is a very defined concept, including under the um, their own statute, under the Geneva Conventions, under the um, under the additional protocols as well. And quite simply. The doctrine of proportionality re uh, requires that any anticipated anticipated loss of civilian life that it must not exceed the potential military advantage to be gained from such a strike. It recognizes that in war there will always be civilian casualties, and that is tragic. However, in relation to Israel's current military operations, you know we have to be very clear. There is a very precise and definitive goal. And that is bringing our hostages back and eliminating Hamas, a genocidal terrorist organization um, that seeks our destruction. To state the obvious, you know, saving the lives of millions of people is legal, is just, and is moral under international law. Now, civilians will die, and that is tragedy. There will be collateral damage. Um, that is a sad and tragic and inevitable outcome of war. However, whereas Israel does everything possible in order to mitigate civilian casualties, which no other army in the history of warfare, not the United States, not the UK, no army has ever gone to this kind of level of, of uh, giving a two weeks notice before you're about to hit a target, of making millions of phone calls, dropping leaflets, of creating safe passages. These are all now um, benchmarks in so many ways that Israel has put up for the rest of the world, including the US Army and others, to follow a benchmark as to what a moral army, army of a democratic state, the kind of goals and standards you must set. Remember, we, in addition to all of that, we also have our lawyers and our military advocate general um, divisions that assess and determine every major strike like this, and in many cases will actually call them off, even though they are legitimate and legal operations in order not to harm civilians. Whereas we know for a fact that Hamas has been using Palestinians as human shields, hiding behind civilian infrastructures. They have been shooting in some cases as civilians trying to flee as well. Um, so that's something that's important that we uh, uh, that we understand that Israel's actions are entirely proportionate, and so far as there are civilian casualties, uh, that that is entirely the blame in this case of the Hamas, which puts them in harm's way. Um, I wanted to touch also about hospitals, which is so important um, and something that's been in the news so much. You know, it's impossible not to look at images of hospitals of these incubators of uh, babies and uh, the wounded and the sick um, being unable to receive treatment. You know, in you know, it's a sacrosanct principle under the Geneva Conventions um, that 
civilian sites such as hospitals receive special protection, special status, meaning they are not allowed to be targeted. However, international humanitarian law also has some element of pragmatism, meaning it does recognize that there are circumstances where that is inevitable and specifically when hospitals become military operations, when they're used by terror groups like we've seen with Hamas, when they build tunnels underneath, when they um, when they hide weapons, ammunition in uh, MRI machines, in, incub in incubators in the NICU. NICU, even that they were the images of Hamas hiding weapons there. They're using these places and command and control structures as weapons depots. That turns them into legitimate military targets. As tragic as it is, it's impossible not to feel empathy, but also a sense of outrage that Hamas would so cynically and perversely turn hospitals into targets. Now, we have to remember also, this doesn't give Israel carte blanche, for example, to do as we want. And it's important also to recognize that Israel has not, you know, there's this conception that almost as if Israel is shooting or at hospitals or throwing bombs. We're not doing anything of the sort. On the contrary, we're putting our own soldiers' lives at, at risk by going physically into these hospitals in order to root out the individual Hamas terrorists so as to not cause any uh, unnecessary loss of civilian uh, casualties. Um, uh, there's a couple of other things I did want to touch on as well in terms of uh, humanitarian aid as well. What are the rules when it comes to things like hospital, like uh, water, electricity, food? Um, insofar as those elements are concerned, um, we have to remember that whilst, yes, there is a humanitarian um, situation in Gaza, but it's entirely the doing of Hamas. Um, there is no requirement in or obligation upon Israel in international law to provide humanitarian services, including supplies of food, water, and the like, to uh, to Gaza. However, we cannot prevent these services from entering or these supplies from entering into Gaza, and nor can we um, institute a siege, which on itself is permissible under rules of war, but not if that is being used as a means to starve the local population. Now, we're either of those things. There are hundreds upon hundreds of humanitarian trucks coming to Gaza, every day with supplies. We can be providing them more, were it not, quite frankly, and even as President Herzog said the other day, for the inefficiency um, of the United Nations uh, mechanisms, in, which have to inspect these uh, supplies as well. And also we need to bear in mind uh, that Hamas continues to siphon humanitarian aid as well. But when it comes to things like electricity um, and fuel, the law there is quite different, precisely because electricity and fuel is used and weaponized by the enemy, by Hamas here, in order to power their tunnels, um, in order to provide fuel for um, uh, for rocket fire and for their command and control operations as well. So once again, uh, Israel is not required to provide humanitarian aid, uh, but we are doing everything possible in order to facilitate humanitarian aid. And insofar as um, uh, the extent we are not, it is only with respect to fuel and electricity, although that we've started uh, providing um, as well. Uh, but that, again, um, insofar as that is used by Hamas in order to um, uh, to power their weapons and um, command control uh, mechanisms, uh, for that we are not required to, nor do we. Um, I'm mindful a bit of, of, of the time, uh, so I wanted to really uh, touch on another thing with respect to hostages, which is something that is so... Um, that is really so prevalent, uh, that is overwhelming, um, that is impossible to uh, neglect. It is everywhere. Um, you know, I live in Tel Aviv. My office and my home is near the hostage square. I walk past it every day. We see posters every day. Um, all of us know someone. Um, we see the images. It is impossible not to be moved, whether we're here in Israel or in America. But it is also infuriating. It is also outrageous, um, you know, that I don't have to tell you that the taking of hostages is a grave, grave war crime under international law, under their own statute, under the International Convention against the taking of hostages, and even when they are taken hostage. Remember also, these are not prisoners of war. These are not soldiers. Uh, these are civilians, mostly civilians in, in any case. They are hostages. And even when they are taken captive, they are still afforded rights. 
all of which are being neglected here once again by Hamas. And we know that Hamas is a ruthless terrorist organization, does not abide by any kind of rules, norms, Geneva Conventions, or the rules of, uh, rules of law. However, that does not absolve the Red Cross from their duty, from their mandate. The International Committee of the Red Cross, their very mission is to provide humanitarian relief, aid and assistance to hostages in the 80 plus days that our loved ones have been held captive in Gaza. The Red Cross has not seen a single hostage. They have not provided a single proof of life. They have even rejected the pleas of the families of Israeli hostages to provide medicine. Can you believe that? The families of the hostages have pleaded to the Red Cross, our loved ones need medicine, whether it's asthma, heart conditions. Can you find a way to provide that to them? The Red Cross refused. They refused to even take this to even take this medicine. And the most outrageous thing, there was an interview with the president of the Red Cross just a few days ago, where she complained, uh, in essence, by saying that their ability to function is constrained insofar as the parties can reach agreements on certain uh, functions that allow them or can allow them to visit hostages and so on. But she then said that if only Israel were to meet some of the demands of Hamas, it would free up and make our ability for us to function easier. Can you comprehend that? She's actually saying, the President of the Red Cross is saying, if only Israel were to meet the demands of the very terrorist organization that massacred, butchered, burnt, raped, mutilated, and took our loved ones hostage, if only we were to meet their demands, as if this is some kind of two equals, which of course we are not. One is a liberal democracy and the other is a bloodthirsty ISIS-like uh, jihadist terror group. Now, the Red Cross is an organization with a long history of a history of abandoning the Jewish people in the Holocaust and they're abandoning us again today. They have uh, an unwavering commitment to neutrality, as they say, but the fact of the matter is they are unwaveringly absent when it comes to Israeli lives. They are unwaveringly absent. Their role, having been relegated, quite frankly, to no more than a to no more than an Uber driver, a taxi driver. That is not their function. They're meant to be in Gaza. They're meant to be insisting on seeing hostages. They're meant to be insisting on using every power at their disposal to provide medicine, to provide proof of life, to provide information as to the whereabouts, but they've simply given up. And that is the reality. But you know, I have to tell you that, you know, it's, it doesn't mean that we are powerless. And especially in the United States, the US is the primary funder of the Red Cross in 2022, having provided some, I believe, almost $700 million in funding, um, perhaps Congress, and not just Congress, all those that do provide funding to the Red Cross, ought to be asking some questions, ought to be asking, where was the Red Cross 80, the last 80 days, why have they not seen a single hostage provided any proof of life or delivered any medicine? Or for that matter, where was the Red Cross when Hamas terrorists used Shifa Hospital and all these other hospitals in Gaza as their terrorist bases? It cannot be that they operated these bases right under their noses and the Red Cross did nothing. So these are a lot of questions that need to be asked. Um, at the end of the day, I think so much of, um, and I hope, um, gave a bit of a glimpse and I'm happy to take questions on this afterwards as well, is relevant to the soldiers uh, because Israel and by extension the idea of already being framed as war criminals, um, guilty before any charges have been laid, that we are some kind of pariah, that we're acting disproportionately, that we're intentionally targeting civilians. This all directly affects soldiers' uh, capabilities, operational actions on the ground. Um, there are already lists that have been drawn up of including of the 40 most senior IDF soldiers for possible war crimes actions. The International Criminal Court is already investigating the case of Israel and Palestine, so to speak. Um, the ICC prosecutor, Karim Khan, was in Israel, I think, only a few weeks ago. Um, it is inevitable that the ICC will investigate this case and they will investigate the actions of our soldiers. Uh, actions of war crimes, actions of disproportionality, actions of targeting civilians, um, NGOs in Europe and elsewhere around the world in friendly jurisdiction can launch uh, private 
war claims. Um, that will be a threat to our soldiers. We've already seen these kinds of actions with respect to people like um, former IDF chief of staff, Boogie uh, Yalon, Deron Olmog, and others. Um, there may be international tribunals, such as the one we had with Yugoslavia, uh, that may be framed against, um, against the IDF. And of course, diplomatic action as well. Uh, but we need to be we need to be vigilant. We need to use every tool, every resource at our disposal to defend, not only defend the state of Israel and the idea of soldiers in the press, in the media, on campuses, in Congress, um, where we're talking about uh, everything from aid to IDF, uh, to Israel, to calls for uh, ceasefires and so on. Um, but we are in the long haul, and this is something that we cannot do alone. We need your support. We need FIDF with us every step of the way. And I know we can we can rely and we can count on that. Um, with with that, uh, perhaps, Steve, I might end my remarks. I, I fear if I did go a little bit too far, I do apologize. But I did want to, uh, with your permission, end with a very short clip. Um, I hope it works. Um, it is a clip of, uh, of Shaul Greenlick. Um, an IDF soldier who um, sadly uh, fell in battle just yesterday. He was buried today. He's from Renana. Um, a few weeks ago, he was able to come home from the front to visit his family. Uh, this is a clip. I'd like you to look at it um, and bear with me for just another minute, if that works. Thank you very much for sharing. him in that image is his mother um as if as if she knew as if that mother's intuition um in the lyrics there's a line there that says imagine me falling into her arms this is a song by shlomo Atsi in which he writes and sings about a longing for a uh, beautiful and a peaceful uh, world without without sadness and pain may we all see such a world in our time soon Thank you, Arsene. Particularly, thank you for the, the insights into what's happening with the International Red Cross, the insights in terms of what we could be looking at with the ICC, with other bodies. And um, you're in a very, very challenging place. But we, we know not only you, but there's a team of attorneys out there that stand for true justice, that stand for morality. And in a world which is, is unfortunately a very immoral world, we're honored to be associated with you and what you stand for. And thank you for, for sharing time with our participants, with our community. We're very grateful. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. Thank you. At this time, we're going to be turning to Major General Nadav Padan for an update and an analysis of what's happening both on the Southern Front and the Northern Front. Major General Padan. Yeah, I'll connect to the the first part of this uh, briefing and say that there is no true justice. True justice there is only under God. There is strategic gold 
and means and if we wish for the Red Cross or the UN or somebody else to rescue us or to win the war for us, we'll lose it. It's, for, it's on our shoulder, on the shoulder of Israel and the shoulder of the Jewish people to win this war. Uh, we should fight all those platforms and all those organizations as part of the war and convince everyone that we are doing the right thing to extend our ability to operate and so far and so on. But don't, you know, uh, expect uh, the Red Cross to support us. They, they want. The, the new uh, woman that is sent to, to Gaza to coordinate the UN work in Gaza, she is married to uh, one of the members of Arafat uh, uh, leadership. She was against Israel by all men all over the years. She could not be neutral as the Red Cross uh, tried to convince everybody that they are. But let's go to the, to the arena that we're dealing with, and I'll very briefly try to explain what's going on in each arena. I'll start with Iran, that actually changed uh, its declaration over the last uh, 24 hours after the assassination of uh, Raza Musawi in Syria. They were quite embarrassed, and they declare that the October 7 attack were a revenge against the elimination of Musawi at the time that are not being, didn't been coordinated with, with, uh, with the Hamas. Hamas went against it and they withdraw from this declaration. But it means that if Iran so far said that they're supporting the, the right of the, the Palestinian uh, people for freedom, and now they're saying or declaring by all means that they are part of the world, which is a change. The other thing that changed is what happened in the South with the Houthis. I don't know if you saw the declaration of the Houthis today. They tried to convince the coalition that worked with the U.S. or under the umbrella of the U.S. to keep the sea open and the uh, uh, red and the Suez Gulf open and ask them to withdraw from the coalition and let them win the U.S. by, by themselves. The Houthis going to win the U.S by themselves. By the way, the same day, uh, American battleship tackled down 12 drones, two rockets, and, and three missiles, which means there is war there. It's not a game. And, the, and Israel tackled two drones on the way to uh, Elad the day before. So it's a war at the south as well. In Iraq and Syria, the militias are keeping the, the friction against the British and American uh, bases. It happened a few hours ago and happened uh, yesterday. Um, and the US are uh, start responding, not like they, uh, the method that they use over the last uh, uh, three weeks. When I'm going uh, down to Judea and Somaria, I mean, everybody thinks that Judea and Somaria is not part of the, of the war, but if we take out everything that happens surround Israel and be focused on what happened during the last few weeks in Judea and Somaria, it's a war. It's a war in Jenin and it's a war in Tulkarem. It's the first time we use jet in Jenin. After uh, years, I think since 2002, after 21 years. Um, uh, yesterday we had friction, we fight in, in Tulkarem. There were six Palestinians that lost uh, their life in those fights, terrorists that lost their life in those fights. Israel found ammunition um, and, and terrorists saw that were plans and, and were ready to uh, uh, to launch a terror attack toward the center of Israel. Um, if I go to the two main arenas, to Hezbollah and, and Gaza, so with Hezbollah was seeing, I mean, if you look at it from a bird's eye view, uh, they keep the same level of friction if you count rocket, but they change the matter. If at the beginning of the war, they try to uh, kill soldiers, Nowadays, that they understood that they can't. And at the same time, Israel killed over 120 uh, terrorist members of Hezbollah. 
the start destroying building. We saw it at the kibbutzim along the border with Manara and uh, Margaliot and other villages uh, uh, along the border, and we saw it today in, in Kiryat Shmona. The idea is to create damages, to destroy houses. If Manara want to go back to their houses tomorrow after we win the war in, in uh, at the north, it will take a few months to rebuild and and recover from from the uh, the damages that uh, Hezbollah created over the last uh, two weeks specifically especially i'm going down to the south at the south we spoke about it last at the last brief idf spread his effort to uh four heads one had continued to clear up the north part of gaza strip while still fighting in daraj and tufakh it's the last two neighborhood of, of the north part of Gaza Strip. Um, and there is another operation that run uh, around Khan Yunus. Another operation that run at what we call the uh, uh, camp at the center of Gaza Strip, uh, Dir el-Balakh, Burej, and so far, and etc. Uh, and another operation close to the city of Rafa. We didn't get into the border between Egypt and in, in, uh, Gaza Strip, well, but we're fighting close to uh, the Hania Airport and the, the east side of, of uh, uh, Rafa. During the, uh, the maneuver, we're learning, we're changing our, our method. The way we're fighting at the north uh, are different. Although even at the north, we changed the method over the days, learn and, and uh, change the, the, our tactics. If it, if at the north we went neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood and clean line after line the the, um, the north part of Gaza Strip, in Chanunas uh, we launched a different kind of method. We surrounded Chanunas and then penetrated directly to the center of gravity of the of the city, and from there we start to uh, clean out the street at the camp. At the refugee camp at the center of, of uh, Gaza Strip, we also surrounded the, the refugee camp, and then we start to cut all the subterranean and the tunnels under the ground, and by that, close the or, or block the ability of, of uh, the terrorists to run away. And we're starting getting in and close the ring that's surrounding the, the camp, uh, line after line of, of uh, a building. So we are uh, changing and learning and developing during the war. That's lead, lead me to the last two lines, which is kind of coordination of uh, expectation. Because a lot of people ask me uh, about uh, uh, when we can declare that we win the war or how it's going to look like. So it's not a binary uh, kind of war. It haven't been since uh, a binary war, since uh, I would say the war in Iraq. Uh, it takes time to uh, look back from retro perspective and say we achieved that, that, and that. And our achievements will be, uh, achievement will be uh, to uh, create different kind of leadership in Gaza Strip, to uh, destroy the Hamas as a terror organization, I'm opening a window. It means that it doesn't mean that there will be no Hamas in Gaza Strip. It means that it will be uh, less organized, more or less like Hamas looked like in Judea and Somalia. And we'll still have to we'll have to fight against Hamas cells inside the city of Gaza Strip in different kind of methods, in, in, in different kind of uh, uh, operation, maybe without all the uh, strike and the amount of ammunition that needed right now uh, to get into the center of the city, maybe it's going to be easier. I think it's going to be easier. Um, and then uh, after a few months, we'll, we, could, we could say that the level of friction and uh, 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 ability to for the IDF to create normal life along the border, along the envelope, uh, of uh, Gaza, that will be the time that we can declare that we win the war and now we have to continue with our uh, long operation to clean the streets of uh, uh, Gaza Strip.
if I said earlier that that if you look at uh, if you count rocket in at the north border, you can see kind of a steady state situation. Every day, more or less the same. There is the same number of of rocket. We can see dramatic decrease in Gaza Strip. If if I don't count the the October seven, just count the ten thousand rocket, a little bit more than ten thousand rocket have been launched. Um, since uh, the October 8, we can see every day decrease of of uh, number of uh, rocket and decrease in the in the uh, quality of uh, rocket that been uh, launching. If the days at the beginning of the war started with uh, hundreds of rocket and then thousands of rockets uh, toward the envelope in, of Gaza Strip, and every day. Well, at least twice, long range rocket to the center of Israel. Now we can have almost a week or a few days without one rocket that launching to the center of Israel and a small number of rocket and mortars that uh, launched over the envelope of uh, uh, Gaza. So we can start see the, the effect of, of the maneuver into um, uh, Gaza Strip. Uh, Regarding the, the pressure and, and, and the negotiation about ceasefire or a negotiation to release our hostage in, in Gaza Strip, I must tell that there is a huge gap between uh, Israel and Hamas. Hamas obviously want to want ceasefire and want to make sure that Hamas is safe and can, can control Gaza Strip, and we cannot allow Hamas to control Gaza Strip. Um, uh, the Egyptian came with another offer today. Israel are uh, learning it. The Hamas is learning it. I think that the Hamas start to understand that he have no other option, and we'll see where it's going to take us. It could take us to two uh, different directions. One is that Hamas will decide to save itself, get out of uh, Gaza, and wait for the right time to come back, or uh, or to uh, decide to fight till till then. Um, the the last thing I want to uh, say is regarding our vis-a-vis -vis our support to the uh, to the soldier. I must tell you, I'm getting hundreds of videos and letter and requests from you and and other that want to support the soldier or good people that want to support the soldier, and we all deal with authentic request of of soldier some of the soldier are are lone soldiers sons of a few of you and some of them are friends of of uh, friends and some of them um reach to uh former israelis that that lives here at the us um we are checking very seriously every uh, video we are continue we have continued discussion with the leadership of the idf friends of the idf are not trying to tell the IDF what it's need. We are trying to coordinate our work with the leadership of the IDF, ask for uh, their need and support immediately every request of the IDF. Since um, the beginning of the war, it took us no longer than 24 hours to respond to every request of the, uh, the IDF. And we're trying to do the right thing, to touch the center of gravity, the thing that really needed to be touched to allow the commanders and the soldier of the IDF to win this war. Support them spiritually, uh, release the time for uh, the commander to be focused on what they have to be focused. Um, I, I must tell you that most of the soldier are not, or almost 100% of the soldier have the, the equipment that the IDF planned them to have it. There is gap here and gap there, the IDF know it and close it. For example, just to give you a, a flavor, there is a lot of videos and a lot of requests about helmets. At the storages of the IDF, there is over 10,000 new tactical helmets that came from Canada, by the way. Uh, and the IDF are not released that easy. Not because every soldier wants a, a tactical helmet means that they, they'll get tactical helmet. Some of the requests is like, um, I would say, like a, like a college son that asks for a new car. He have a car. It will be 
more than happy to get a new one, but doesn't mean that it needed. And if you have an extra half a million uh, dollar, put it in the in the at the place that will change uh, uh, life by paying for extra uh, study at the university or whatever. We are trying to be focused with answering the request of the leadership of the uh, IDF, and I'm saying it with full understanding that. All of us trying to do our best to support uh, uh, the IDF and all those requests are authentic requests and your letters and, and questions that's been sent to me and other workers of the FIDF are comes the requests come from the from the right uh, uh, perspective. Uh, but trust that that we're doing daily coordination with the IDF and support the right thing that needed to support in the IDF. So thank you for all your support. And you can see whatever we are doing at the website. And we're about to deal with another huge project that, that support counter uh, PTSD. We're dealing with other things that need to be supported. And the FIDF with the IDF and with the Minister of Defense right now running two huge projects to support soldiers and veterans that uh, uh, suffering PTSD or launching project with the IDF to prevent from a soldier to get to the situation that are suffering from PTSD. So uh, we are running great project with the, uh, with the IDF right now. And it's because of your support and your uh, love and, uh, and care about uh, what happened in Israel. So thank you for uh, allowing Israel to win this war Winning this war, it's men winning the future of the Jewish people. Thank you. Thank you, Major General Padan. Yes, in the, as the Major General said, the, the PTSD therapies are first and foremost detection, early detection to prevent it from becoming acute, as well as treating, in, treating and taking care of the acute and, and the subacute forms of PTSD, setting up centers all over the country, all over the state of Israel, so that no matter where one lives are close enough to a center. That's something we'll be giving you further details on, but this is a first priority, a first priority of the Ministry of Defense and of the IDF. Major General Pradhan, the two communities to the east side of northern Gaza that you mentioned, where Israel first started with, with air, strategic airstrikes, now you have uh, foot soldiers, you have a ground battle in those two communities. How do they compare and contrast in terms of Hamas centers to, let's say, Beit Hanun, some of the other suburbs of Gaza City? I, I know that they were left you know, to a point where they were not necessarily a, a focus, a target, until after the IDF went into Khan Yunis, until after the IDF went into central and southern Gaza. But now that they're a point of battle, can you describe to us the nature of those two communities, what kind of Hamas presence there are in those communities? Um, are you speaking about Daraj and Tufah? Yes. So uh, Daraj and Tufah are not as crowded as Jibalia and Sajaya, and not as strong uh, as vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis the, the existence of Hamas as, as Sajaya and, and Jibalia, but they, they've been used as a, as a headquarter. Uh, all the towns that that surrounding Gaza Strip, and in a way creating the front line of Gaza Strip against Israel, were with bases and, and subterranean system. Uh, but there is no uh, a brigade headquarter in those kind of in those neighborhood like there is in in Jabalia and Sajaya. Um, I don't want to get into uh, uh, I would say. Um, intelligence that uh, not allowed to share, but there is a reason for, for the order of, of uh, the maneuver. We could get into those neighborhoods earlier. There is other issues that we're trying to uh, achieve during the war. If it is uh, uh, attacking a, a lay leader of Hamas, if it is to uh, rescue uh, our hostages, so there is other intelligence that run in the IDF system and, and in a way change the priority and, uh, and, um, and the timeline of, of, the, of the maneuver. So uh, we didn't 
take those two neighborhoods uh, only at the last uh, part of the North Gaza maneuver because uh, there were uh, uh, big headquarters in those neighborhoods. Uh, there were different reasons for that. And then the last question we have for you, relative to the update that you gave us on Sunday, what have you been seeing over the last three days in terms of the amount of rockets, the kind of targets that Hezbollah is using, whether it's anti-tank mortars, whether it's rockets, the attack on northern Israel from the Hezbollah. Have you seen it plateau? Have you seen it go up? What's your take on this? So, uh, uh, as I mentioned, there is kind of steady state in the numbers. The change is not in the numbers of rocket. The change is in the kinds of rocket and the target. Uh, Hamas, as I mentioned, understood that he cannot kill soldier, not in the number he wishes. And he changes target from soldier to buildings. Uh, so he used two uh, main tools. One is anti-tank missiles that run close to the border. Those missiles have a range of, of uh, there is two kinds, uh, between five to nine kilometers. So it means like, let's say, four to uh, eight kilometers deep into the uh, state of Israel. Uh, they can cover all the ring of, of uh, settlement, kibbutzim, yeshuvim, moshavim along the uh, border uh, between uh, Lebanon and, and Israel. That's one one tool. And the other tool is the regular rocket. Today in in Kiryat uh, Shmonad, in, um, um, it was regular rocket, rad rocket. It hit the Kiryat Shmonad. It was a pack of, of uh, 11 rockets that uh, three of them been tackled, four of them hit. Uh, uh, the city of Kiryat Shmona, and the other fell on outdoor, uh, close to the city. Uh, but but the goal is definitely, as far as I understand it, to destroy buildings, to make damages. He knows that there is no one in Kiryat Shmona. The people of Kiryat Shmona have been evacuated weeks ago. So launching toward Kiryat Shmona have only one goal, to destroy to uh, create damages that will cost Israel a lot of money and will terrify the people from coming back to the city. Prevent them from coming back. Last question. Um, and it's, it's a very speculative question that I'm asking you. Where do you see in the next few weeks things going up north in terms of the Hezbollah threat? Because you'd mentioned to us, and it's in the news, that many of the Radvan now have, have gone north of the Latani River. Many of them have evacuated, many of the civilians have evacuated, but yet the, the, the anti-tank mortars, the rockets keep continuing. Do you have a sense of where you see this going in the next few weeks? I, I think that Israel have no other option, but make sure that Hezbollah uh, special forces or Duan will move north to uh, Litani River. We cannot accept those kind of uh, uh, terrorists uh, living along the border, aiming uh, to launch strike like uh, we face in October 7. When it comes to rocket, it doesn't matter. Litani is not, not changing much because uh, the, the range of rocket of Hezbollah could cover all Israel north or south to the Litani. Um, the issue will be, let's say we uh, shift most of our goal at the south and we're changing our, our focus from the south to the north. Um, we'll have to do one of two things, to push Hezbollah, or to aim Hezbollah that was about to launch a, a huge attack and force them to accept the diplomatic offer that the U.S. and other put on the table at the very beginning of this war for Hezbollah to accept in a way 1701 plus uh, inspection and, and Shaba farm and, and close to the shore uh, or to push Hezbollah by force. From the perspective of the IDF, the IDF should, and as far as I know, are getting ready to push Hezbollah by force. Um, 
And then there will be a question. Let's say we'll get to ceasefire in Gaza Strip. And now we are starting a war at the north. Our Hamas are obligated to launch rocket like Hamas were obligated to launch rocket when we maneuver into Gaza Strip. I, if this agreement between those two uh, terror organizations have uh, uh, those kind of uh, uh, obligations, uh, do uh, Hezbollah and Hamas understand that uh, the South suffer enough and, and Hamas is not, cannot take part of this uh, war anymore? That's one question. The other question will be what's going to happen with the Iranian? What kind of involvement there'll be with the Iranian? Not with proxies, not with uh, Shia militia in Syria or in Iraq or, in, or with the Houthis in Yemen, but directly from Iran. And I'm not speaking about launching another uh, uh, cyber attack. I'm, I'm speaking about getting involved by all means. Uh, so there is a few questions here. The, the dilemma of the leadership in the IDF and in Israel are quite complicated. And it's uh, a system that built from a lot of components that each component is a system by itself. It's a system of system. We have the system of Hezbollah, the system of the Shia and Syria and the excess of evil with the Shia of the uh, Palestinian system, uh, Judea and Somalia and, and, and Gaza Strip and the connection between all those seven uh, arena, which is a quite complicated uh, system. So for all the people that shout, how come we don't open a war uh, at the North yesterday, tomorrow, we have to uh, look at the strategic picture and make the right decision. Uh, at the South, we didn't plan it. We've been forced after the strike of October 7 to get into this war. We have a lot of gap when it comes to uh, strategic planning. We all speak right now about what's going to be the end state. Um, before we are doing the next step, we have to make sure that strategically we plan it from bottom to top. And there is a lot of question right now, uh, but you know, from from my opinion, and and from most of the people uh, in Israel opinion, definitely the people that lives along the border between Israel and Lebanon, we cannot accept the existence of of uh, Radwan forces, which is the equivalent to Nukba of Hamas along the border uh, with Israel. And you've mentioned that there's five thousand Radwan forces. Yep. Yep. Okay. Thank you, Major General Padan. Thank you. And a, and a very uh, thank you on behalf of all of us from the FIDF family to Arsen Ostrowski. Wishing everyone a good day, praying for our soldiers in Israel and praying for the peace of Israel. Thank you.